Well, I encourage you to take your Bibles out and turn to the book of Psalms, Psalm 78. And hopefully you got a bulletin when you came in the door. And if so, there should be one of these outlines. You can grab that, pull that out of the bulletin and follow along this morning as well. We are continuing. This is week number 13 in a series that I began entitled Summer of Hope. Now, really, all year long, we've been focused on this concept of hope and the Christian's hope that we have in God. But over this summer, we've been zoomed in on this concept as we've been considering why we can hope. And from this, from various passages of Scripture throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament alike, we have first looked at some of the things that are foundational for our hope as Christians. We can understand and we can know that we can have hope in God because, first of all, we have an authority for hope, namely the Bible. God has preserved for us his word in the scripture, which serves for us as the foundation, the authority from which we can have hope in what sometimes seems like hopeless times. We not only have the foundation of hope, the authority of hope in the Bible, but we also have the very basis of hope, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and took on human flesh, and he took in our place as the perfect substitute the penalty for our sin. This is the basis for any hope we can have, that we can have relationship with God, with the creator of the universe, because of the work of his son Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. And then we also considered how profound our hope is because of the new birth. That the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, comes and does a supernatural work in dead hearts and brings them from death to life. And that's just a few of the things we've considered over these weeks that are really serve as the foundation, the basis for our hope in God. And then a few weeks ago, we kind of turned a corner in our focus and we started looking at consequences of this hope, results of this hope, fruit of hope. What should we live like and what should we look like if we are Christians who have this hope. And some of the things we've considered is that as hopeful people who hope in God, we of all people should be joyful. Would you agree with that? That joyless Christian is an oxymoron. We have hope, therefore we should be joyful. Secondly, we should be loving. That Christians should be the most loving people on the planet. And then last week we considered this consequence of hope, and that is boldness in our witness for Jesus. Now, just a disclaimer, boldness does not mean brashness. The fact that we've been commanded to be bold with the gospel does not mean you have permission to be a jerk, right? You hear me? Boldness means clear. Boldness means straightforward. Boldness means unafraid and unashamed. Well, this morning, we're going to look at maybe a little bit different concept of hope, and that is educating children to hope. Two months ago, my wife and I were at a convention And we had the great privilege of hearing Dr. Tony Evans preach to open this conference. And Dr. Evans, the conference was in Nashville. And so he related a story that in an experience he had when he was in Nashville, because his son Jonathan actually had a brief stint playing football for the Tennessee Titans. And so he told a story about how he came to Nashville to watch his son play. And the experience he related, if you've ever been to an NFL game or an NCAA football game with a large stadium, you no doubt have experienced this same phenomenon. Whenever the home team comes out of the tunnel, what happens? The crowd goes crazy. They're yelling, they're cheering, they're applauding. Kids are hanging over the rails at the tunnel to try to get a high five from their favorite players. But when the opposing team comes in, the visiting team, opposite reaction, right? 
Ooh, jeers. Those cheers turn into jeers. And he related this fact that, you know, whenever you go to a football game, you are seeing conflict and chaos on the gridiron. They're on the football field. You have two opposing teams, and they're easily identifiable. Why? They're on opposite sides of the field. Two, they're wearing different uniforms. You can easily identify them. They have two opposite goals they're heading towards, two completely different agendas, and what transpires on that field is conflict and chaos and even violence. Then there's a third team that enters the stadium, the officials. And they're easily identifiable as well because they're wearing uniforms of black and white, and you know these are the officials. Now, these officials are there to bring order to the chaos and the conflict. They are there, and they are not for the visiting team, and they are not for the home team. You see, they represent a different kingdom. They represent 345 Park Avenue in New York City. That's the home office of the NFL. And they have been commissioned, they have been sent to the conflict and the chaos, not to put on the jerseys of either of the opposing teams, but to be distinct and different from those opposing teams. Further, they know when they go there, they're not going to win any popularity contests. They know they are in the field, but not of it. They know when they go there that they will make calls that the home crowd is going to appreciate. And then the crowd will cheer them. They will also, maybe on the very next play, make a call that the home crowd will not appreciate because it's going to look like it's in favor of the visiting team, and they will get booed. I've participated in some of those boos. But they know they're not there to win popularity contests. They're there to represent a different kingdom, and they have been sent, listen, with a book. And every decision they make on the field of play is based upon what is written in the book. And they've been sent there to bring order, to bring peace in the midst of conflict and chaos. Would you agree with me today that we are in a world filled with cultural conflict and chaos? And we have been sent from the home office. We are representatives of a different kingdom. And we have been given a book which governs all the calls we make on the field of play. In our world today, there are opposing ideologies, theories, ideals, and philosophies that are of such chaotic and conflicting nature, I've never seen this in my 52 years of living, like what we're seeing today. There is racial conflict in our world today, and so people are throwing around all kinds of theories and ideas, and these theories are being debated and discussed. There is socioeconomic conflict. There is political conflict. There is pandemic conflict. And there is educational conflict. Diverse viewpoints of how or even if schools should open, should meet publicly, and what the curriculum should be when they do meet together. 
And the teachers we're honoring today, the teachers that have given their lives to impact children are caught right in the middle of the fire. But don't forget, there's a third team in the midst of the conflict. They are the team that has been sent to bring order. And friends, this third team cannot put on the jerseys of the opposing teams. We must remain as representatives of a different kingdom. Now, if you've ever watched a football game, you know that from time to time, this third team of officials will gather into a huddle. And those seven individuals will form a circle and they will dialogue about whatever the crisis is of the moment. And when they break that huddle, they break with a unified voice and a unified vision based upon what they read in the book. Jesus had a similar huddle. 2,000 years ago, after his work of death on the cross, burial, resurrection from the dead, he called a huddle of 11 disciples. And there he gave what is known as the Great Commission. This commission is so important, it's recorded in all four Gospels and the book of Acts. And this commission he gave them for a unified purpose. It's still the operating procedures for his disciples today. However, our effectiveness in this world as kingdom representatives will be significantly diminished if, one, we forget the kingdom authority we're functioning under, two, if we forget the purpose for which we've been placed in this world, and three, we choose to put on a jersey of the opposing teams, thereby making us indistinguishable from those who are in the conflict. As we've been, again, considering this concept of Christian hope and the last couple of weeks we've been looking at results from hope, I believe this is also a consequence, a result of the Christian's hope in God that we educate our children differently. We view education through the grid of the Bible, through the grid of truth. Now, this concept of education is all through both the Old Testament and the New Testament alike. You think of Jesus himself, we often think of him as a preacher who would preach sermons, but he's never referred to as a preacher in the New Testament, but he is referred to as a teacher, as a rabbi. And those who were Jesus' followers, he called them disciples. The Greek word mathetes is literally a learner, a student. Education was central to Christ's work. He was the teacher. They were the students. Instruction and education was going on. So Jesus placed a high value on education. Therefore, as his followers, we too should place a high value on education. This emphasis on education is also through the Old Testament. In fact, we're going to be looking at an Old Testament passage this morning, Psalm 78, that bears this out. Psalm 78 is the second longest psalm in the Psalter, in the book of Psalms. It was written by Asaph, who was one of King David's right-hand men. He was a Levite. He was a leader of music in the kingdom of Israel. So look with me at Psalm 78. We're going to consider the introduction to this long psalm, the first eight verses. Here is God's word. Listen to it. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that, have, that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from, our, from their children, 
but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. My friends, this is a vitally important principle that is borne out in this text and throughout the Bible, and it's this. Here is what is highlighted and what we can walk away from. If you miss everything else, don't miss this. According to the Bible, the primary responsibility for the education of children lands on their parents. Parents are the primary educators of children. What this means is that as Christian parents, we have the ultimate and final responsibility for the training and instructing of our children. Therefore, we do not abdicate that responsibility, the training, the instructing to any other entity or organization or institution. We don't hand over the instructing of our children to the government. We don't abdicate our children's training even to the church. I ain't responsible for your child's education. Parents, you are. Now, what that means is, well, excuse me, what it does not mean is that we don't utilize all of the things before us in our modern society that help us, that aid us, schools, academies, institutions. So what this concludes is whether it's homeschool, private school, prep school, public school, and in the last 25 years as a parent, we've utilized all of those and more in the training and educating of our five children. What it means is is that through this vast array of educational opportunities that we have in a modern society, it is all filtered through the grid of biblical truth as parents. So friends, every education your child receives, regardless of the institution they go to, should be a Christian, Bible-centered education. Now remember, we are of a different kingdom. We wear a different jersey. And we function based upon the established truth of the book we've been given. And friends, this process of filtering education through the grid of the Bible, I still do it with my university students, children. I regularly have conversations with my children who are in college about the things being poured into their brains from their professors. We dialogue about them. We talk about them. We evaluate them through the grid of biblical truth. You need to know that throughout history, Christians have been the primary champions of education for whole societies. When missionaries make pioneer work into new lands and new regions, they establish two things. They establish a church and they establish a school because they want people to read so they can come to know God through his word. Throughout church history, it has been Christians who have championed education for whole societies. In fact, even in our country, the very first public school publicly funded academy was in Boston, funded by the Christian 
Puritans, and it's still a publicly funded school to this day from the mid-1600s. So public school, believe it or not, is a Christian ideal. Now, our goal in our brief time today is going to outline this passage we just read and hopefully develop a well-rounded, kingdom-minded, Bible-saturated view of education and utilize Psalm 78 something as a launch pad for this endeavor. So three things I want us to focus on from this passage. Number one, I want us to consider the treasure of truth. The treasure or the treasury or the treasuring, you could put anything down you want, of truth. The psalmist, Asaph, as we might expect, very poetically utilizes a broad range of synonyms to describe the truth, to describe the revealed word of God. In verse 1, he talks about it as teaching and words. In verse 2, he describes it as a parable and sayings from of old. In verse 3, he says things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. In verse 4, he talks about them being glorious deeds, wonders. Clearly, the psalmist treasures, values, respects the truth. And he is encouraging and seeking to motivate us to treasure, value, and respect the truth his readers then and his readers today. In fact, this truth that he poetically describes in these synonymous words in verses 1 through 4, he very specifically names in verse 5. Look at verse 5. He says this, He, God, established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. This is absolutely foundational to our understanding of education as Christians. Did you notice those two verbs in that verse? Established, appointed. You see the the finality of those words? There's something settled about them, something that is fixed, something that is stable and secure. The word of God is established. It is appointed. He did it. Now, the reason these things are established and the reason they're appointed is because they come from God himself. He is the creator. God is the architect of all the laws of science. God is the theorizer of all the rules of mathematics. God is the guide supremely of all of human history. God is the author of all the language arts. All truth is God's truth. But here specifically in verse 5, the psalmist describes, quote, the testimony in Jacob and law in Israel. God has spoken, God has revealed, God has established and appointed a testimony and a law. What is this? I want you to consider for a moment what life would be like in our world without the revealed word of God. What would life be like if in society there was no established testimony from God, no appointed law from God. Well, for many, there is no established law. And so as all the different waves and winds of culture beat upon the shores from the sea of confusion that we live in, people try to understand, people try to interpret, people try to diagnose, and they come up with all kinds of ideas and philosophies, thoughts, theories to define our world and to explain what's happening as they pop up here, there, and everywhere. And everybody's got an opinion, right? 
Everybody has ideas about what is helpful or harmful to a society. Everybody's got ideas and philosophies about what is right or wrong, what is good or bad. And these philosophies and ideals are based on human experience, human emotion, human feelings, cultural pressures, tradition. This is just the way we've always done it and some other human authority. They're not based on something that is established, but that is appointed. And as such, we have a society that is like a leaf on a raging ocean floating in the sea of confusion. But here's the deal. God has spoken. God has given his word. Now, what specifically is the testimony and the law that the psalmist is referring to here. He's referring to the basis of all law. All of our laws today are based on what he's referring to here, namely the Ten Commandments as they were given through Moses, God's servant. It's the fundamental basis of all law, our legal system today. The same word testimony is used in Exodus 31 in relation to the Ten Commandments. Verse 18, the Bible says, And he, God, gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. This is the testimony Asaph is referencing, the testimony of the Ten Commandments. But have you ever thought about this reality? We're we're mostly familiar with the Ten Commandments. Many of you could name all of them. But the Ten Commandments don't actually begin with the list of rules, thou shalt, thou shalt not. They begin with something else. Before God ever says, thou shalt not or thou shalt, here's what God does. He reveals himself and he reveals his work. Notice how he put it in in the book of Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. Before the Ten Commandments, before the list of rules, God says, I am the Lord your God. That's who he is. Here's what he did who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Rule number one, you shall have no other gods before me. The Ten Commandments begin with God's self-revelation. This is who I am, people. And this is what I have done for you. What did he do for them? He rescued them from the bondage and the slavery under Egypt. He set them free by his mighty outstretched arms. And friends, the same is true today. Before God ever comes to you and says, you must do this, you must not do that, first he reveals his nature, who he is, and then he reveals his work. You may be here this morning and you would not consider yourself a Christian. Before God comes to you and says, hey, you need to do this, he comes to you and he reveals who he is. I am your creator. I created you. I wove you together in your mother's womb. And as such, you are accountable to him. Before any other group or person you give account, you will give an account to God. He says, this is who I am. And then he says, this is what I have done. I've sent my one and only son, Jesus, who took on human flesh. And in the taking on of human flesh, he was tempted with all the temptations and the trials that we know and experience in our human lives. But he never once failed. And so as such, he was pure and he was perfect. And he was the only one who had the credentials to bear the punishment for your sin and for my sin. And so through his death on the cross, through his burial, and through his resurrection on the third day, he can provide life for all who trust in him, who believe in his name. This is the good news of the gospel. 
And before God ever comes to you and says, you got to do this, he says, first, you need to know who I am and what I have done to rescue you from slavery. This is the God we worship. The commands of God always flow out of his person and out of his gracious and merciful work. And these realities are foundational to have a biblical understanding of education. We must value as God's people. We must treasure as kingdom people representing a different kingdom, God's revealed word, his laws, his precepts. This is the treasure of truth. Secondly, I see in Psalm 78, number two, the transfer of truth. And we've talked about this a little bit. But here in Psalm 78, it is straightforward and it is explicit. We have a clear responsibility as those of us who are Christian parents to transfer the truth of who God is and what he has done to our children. Notice how he put it in verse four. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Christian parents, you have a responsibility. You have a duty. You have a call to proclaim the marvelous deeds of God to your children. This is a fact in both the Old Testament and the New Testament alike. We see this first communicated through Moses in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Bible says this, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. This transference of truth from parent to to child. It's to be done diligently. It's to be done regularly. It's to be done faithfully. It's to be done intentionally. Here's how that looks in our family. For 25 years, we have been doing this with our children. So if you were a member of my household today, tomorrow morning at 625, if you didn't have an alarm set, I'm knocking on your door. Time we meet at the table. It doesn't matter if we've had three-year-olds or 23-year-olds, which we have in our home today. It didn't matter if they're our biological children or our exchange student who lived with us all last year. At 6.30 in the morning, for 25 years, every weekday, our family meets at the table for about 10 minutes. We read the Bible. We discuss the Bible. We share prayer needs. We memorize whole chapters of the Bible. 10 minutes. That's all it takes. Then throughout our day, throughout our weeks, we have unscheduled conversations where experiences, world events, political ideas. We throughout the day and throughout the weeks and throughout the months, we have unscheduled conversations where we bring all these things that are influencing our children into alignment with the word of God. That's exactly what Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 7, command us to do. This is not just an Old Testament principle. This is a New Testament principle as well. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 6, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That word there, discipline, is the Greek word paideia, from which we get pedagogy or pedagogical. If you're a teacher and you went through 
teacher training, you know what pedagogical means. It's the science of instruction. It's the science of teaching. And the science of instruction begins with fathers and mothers in the home training and teaching their children. And a large part of this responsibility of training and discipling and instructing and educating children here, the psalmist highlights for us this biblical view of education is a transcendent view of the truth, first and foremost. It is the Word of God. We treasure the truth, and then there's the transference of this truth. And I would repeat, it's altogether wise and appropriate to partner with institutions, whether those are schools, academies, church, Sunday school, children's ministries, pastors, ministers, friends, but we must never forget the primary responsibility to educating our children falls squarely on the parents. So there's the treasuring of truth. There's the transference of truth. Here's the third thing. Number three, the transformation from truth. In verses six through eight of the psalm, there are three transformative results that occur from parents educating their children as we've been commanded to do. There is a transformation that comes because of the commitment of parents. You could call this Three aims of education. Here they are. First, transformation from truth is this. They will know God. Your children will know God. Verse 6 says that the next generation might know. As we communicate these timeless truths, our precious children will come to know their creator The Bible is often referred to in theology as special revelation. Revelation is revealing something that has been hidden. And what the Bible does for us is the Bible reveals God. As we study the Bible, as we teach the Bible to our children, as we interpret all of life and the conflict and chaos through the grid of Scripture, our children will come to know God. There is nothing as important as Christian parents than this. Friends, during the brief time you have of caring for your children, it is not knowledge of mathematics that is primary. It is not knowledge of history or science. And don't miss this. It is not your child's knowledge of football, basketball, Or baseball. The primary knowledge for your child is to know God. If the church of America would spend just a percentage of time on focusing on the knowledge of God as parents rather than the knowledge of baseball, what an impact the kingdom people would make. This is our responsibility. And the transformation that comes from prioritizing the truth is our children will come to know God. Here's the second one. They will hope in God. Verse 7 says, so that, in order that, as a result of that, they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. Don't miss this. Knowledge of God results in hoping in God. It goes from the head, knowledge about God, to the heart, hoping in God. And in fact, this is the title of my message, Educating Children to Hope. And that's exactly what this verse speaks of. 
If we view education just as a bunch of facts, just the facts, ma'am, we teach facts, we teach them from a biblical worldview because we understand the reality of the Bible, but we never teach them in such a way that, that there is a transformation that happens, a hope that happens. That's what we do. There are so many things in this world that are robbing our children of hope. There's so much chaos that our children are plunged into that we as parents and grandparents never had to experience or, or navigate. We have been sent from headquarters as a third team, as kingdom representatives, with the playbook, with the rule book, in order to bring peace that we might see our children be world changers to fill their minds with truth so their hearts will be filled with hope. And that will inevitably, inevitably lead to this third transformation from the truth. They will obey God. They will know God. They will hope in God. They will obey God. Because education is not just about facts. It's not just about feelings. It's about changed behavior, changed lives, transformed lives. Friends, we will not have achieved the goal, succeeded in our God-given responsibility to educate our children if they living, end up living lives knowing about God, having warm feelings for God, but living in disobedience to God. And this is why hope is so essential. Because what we hope in is how we bring our lives into alignment with, our, with how we act, what we do. If your hope is in politics, you'll be consumed with politics. If your hope is in money, you'll be consumed with your vocation, your work, your investments, how to get more money. If your hope is based on relationships, I just want somebody to love me. Can anybody find me somebody to love? <laughs> then all of your focus will be on relationships. Now listen, as Christians, are we engaged in politics? Yes. As Christians, do we work jobs diligently? Yes. As Christians, do we enjoy human relationships? Yes. But our hope is not found ultimately in any of those things. Our hope is in God. And when we hope in God, it will bring into alignment our behavior. You know things are out of alignment. It reveals a much deeper issue going on. I can't tell you how many times in the last 25 plus years of pastoral ministry I've had someone in my office, in my study, tell me of their warm feelings for God, tell me of their love for Jesus, and then in the very next breath admit premeditated decisions to disobey his word. Just a couple weeks ago, oh, I love God, I love Jesus, but I'm not going to stop sleeping with my boyfriend. There's something out of alignment here. You don't have a hope in God. The truth transforms our knowledge of God, what our ultimate hope is, and then they will obey God. And this is the true aim of education as Christians. As we close today, I really want to focus on two areas of application. First, I want to talk to parents. I've been talking mostly to parents today. And I would just ask, do you have some kind of plan? Some kind of plan to educate your children and to impart the truth of the Scripture to your children. 
so that they will be able to stand in the midst of the conflict and the chaos. What is more important in your life? What is more important in your schedule? It only takes 10 minutes to read the Bible, draw some principles from the Bible, pray the Bible. If you say, I don't have time, check your priorities. You know, Jesus had something to say about education. He had something to say about teaching and instruction. That huddle I mentioned at the beginning of the message where he called his disciples together and he gave them the great commission recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the opening of the book of Acts. He talked about education. He talked about instruction. In fact, look how the eyewitness, the one who was there, Matthew, the detailed disciple, how he recorded that commission, that huddle speech. Matthew 28, 18 says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So this great commission, Jesus gives these 11 disciples in the huddle, and by extension, he has given them to us, those of us who are his followers. He first said, make disciples. Remember what I told you the word disciple means? It means learner, means student. You are to go into the world and make students who will come and sit at the feet of the master teacher to learn. And those who say, yes, I will be a student, I will be a learner, I will be a disciple of Jesus, then what's next? You baptize them as a confession of their faith to the world. And then what's the third step? You instruct them, you teach them to observe, didasco, didactic, that's a teaching. You teach them, you instruct them. It's all about education. Now, most of us, if we're, we're Christians and we've been in the church most of our lives, We've read this, we've heard this great commission perhaps hundreds of times. And most folks think about those three verbs or participles that Jesus uses there, going, baptizing, teaching. But those three action steps he gave in the huddle are sandwiched with two truths. First truth, first piece of bread that's foundational is this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is Jesus. And so as I close, I want to give a second piece of application to our educators, to our teachers who are here. First of all, as representatives first of a different kingdom in your school, you walk into that school building, into that classroom, into that administrative office, you walk in authority. Not the authority ultimately of your school board or of the superintendent or the system or even your principal. Your first and primary authority you walk into that classroom with is Jesus' authority. And Jesus said, guess what? I got all authority. The second thing is that bottom piece of bread on the sandwich of the action steps. And lo, or behold, and that word behold means you can bank on it. Behold, I am the name of God in Greek, ego ami, which means I, even I, am with you always to the end of the age. Teachers, when you walk into that chaotic classroom tomorrow, you don't walk in alone. Jesus walks with you. He says, I am with you 
always to the very end of the age. This is who Jesus is, all authority, and this is what Jesus does for you, believing Christian educator. He walks with you. And so, teachers, I would commend you. Walk in that authority and walk in that knowledge of his presence with you. And that leads to my last thought. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 1.7.